Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thank you for joining me this Monday, March 13th. Uh, Did you change all the clocks? Now, if you have... um, a smartphone, chances are it changed all by itself. If you have an Apple Watch, it changed as well. But remember, you've got uh, the clock by your bed, you've got the microwave, you've got the coffee pot, <laughs> whatever wall clocks you have that work on battery power, um, you know, there's a lot. I usually find a couple weeks later there's still a few clocks that I forgot to change. But, you know, here's what I was thinking. You know, most people are really tired of switching the clocks back and forth, but it's hard for our government to settle on either um, daylight savings time or just regular old standard time like we have in the winter because each has its proponents. And the people who don't want daylight savings time year-round believe that it would make um, the mornings darker, longer in the winter and possibly put kids at risk as they walk to school or walk to the bus stop. And um, I don't care. I've said this before. I don't care. I just wish we would pick one time and stick with it. But here's the other thing. I don't care about you know, what we do in the fall, how we move our clocks back and get an extra hour. But when it's this time when we're moving forward, Rather than doing it over the weekend and losing a valuable hour of rest and relaxation on the weekend, let's do it during the work week. Honestly, if today, if this afternoon was when we changed our clocks and uh, those of us who are working, like right now, let's say we were going to change our clocks at 2 o'clock on Monday. Well, right now it would be 3 o'clock. Look at that. We would have... An hour of work under our belts without having to put out any effort whatsoever. You want people to embrace daylight savings time? Make the change when the vast majority of people are on the clock working. I know there are people who work on weekends, so I'm sorry. I'm just kind of leaving you out of this. But if we were changing the clocks this afternoon or tomorrow afternoon, and you got to get paid for an hour of work that you didn't have to do, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you suddenly feel a lot better about daylight savings time? I know I would. So there's my brilliant solution. I have so many brilliant solutions. I should put them together in a book. Jonas Bezito's Ideas for Making the World a Better Place that is easier and happier to negotiate. Yes. Okay. Donald Trump's going to Iowa. You know, uh, when he ran for president before, he didn't do so well in Iowa. But um, he is on his way to Iowa. This is the first time he's gone to Iowa since he declared his candidacy. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, um, Ari Melber from MSNBC, he, in addition to his television show, he also writes um, a newsletter. 
And um, he wrote a really interesting article. He was like, you know, for those of you who may have lost track, I want to bring you up to date on the potential indictments that Donald Trump is facing and where he's facing them. Most of us, many of us, while still potentially hopeful, uh, every day that goes by, we're a little less hopeful that Mr. Trump is actually going to face the music. Will something happen? And if it does happen, will it be enough to really make people feel that we are sending a message that nobody's above the law? God, I hope so. But in his um, most recent essay, Ari Melber brings us up to speed on what are basically the four criminal cases that Donald Trump is now facing. And I read a lot about this, but it was really great, I thought, to see a summary. And so I'm going to share some of that with you. Okay. Four open criminal investigations that Donald Trump is involved in. There's a case in New York that involves the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Legal experts who know more about this stuff than me say the New York case is the smallest. It's it's about what Trump did before he ever became president. Uh, most of the laws that are potentially broken here are perhaps misdemeanors. But it is, they say, also the simplest case to prove. There are payments. There are receipts. And remember, this is a crime that was already proven and somebody went to jail. Remember Michael Cohen? Remember all the indictments against him that made reference to a mysterious other person involved, which everybody knew, and it was finally revealed this mysterious other person was Donald Trump? So um, there, that's one criminal probe he's facing. Then remember, he's also facing a criminal investigation in Georgia. That was where he was um, trying to pressure Mr. Raff- Raffensberger, the secretary of state there. Find me, find me, just find me 11,000 votes. Find me, find me 11,000 votes. In that case, we have an outgoing president trying to abuse his power to steal an election in a state. The legal experts, according to Ari Melber, say that this case is a little more complex. There's less direct evidence on Trump, though we do, of course, have that very damning phone call that we've all heard. And um, this one is uh, potentially groundbreaking because it's, Basically, the work of a local prosecutor uh, trying to bring charges um, to protect a federal presidential election. Okay, the most the two remaining cases against Donald Trump, the open criminal investigations are considered the most serious. One, the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Because unlike what happened with Mike Pence and unlike what happened with Joe Biden, it is clear from testimony 
from people in the Trump inner circle that these were not accidentally taken by mistake. This was a deliberate decision on Donald Trump's part to take classified documents into his personal possession. And then he and his team repeatedly lied to people from the National Archives and the FBI about whether or not they had these documents. This is this is not, oh, gosh, look at this. This orange sheet got mixed in with the yellow sheets. I'm so sorry. Better check the rest of my boxes. Mm-mm. This is a case of somebody who took these documents on purpose, lied to federal investigators about them, and then tried to hide them from investigators. Lawyers who are in deep trouble now for having signed off on a document that said, oh, we affirm you've got everything, when that wasn't the case. And the guy who wrote the document, he didn't want to sign it. He got another lawyer to sign it because he knew it was a lie. She's now in a whole lot of trouble. Christina Robb is. And she's trying to say, well, I added a sentence that said, to the best of my knowledge, honey, you're a lawyer. You tell the feds X is X and Y is Y. And then you throw in a little sentence that says, well, to the best of my knowledge, that is not the get out of jail card you seem to think it is. And then the other D.C. case is the one um, that alleges that the insurrection on January 6th was the responsibility of Donald Trump, that he supported it. He didn't rein it in that he is responsible. Now, a judge has already ruled that the people who were involved in the insurrection can sue Donald Trump for leading them into for leading them astray, for leading them into trouble. It's his. The judge said, man, this was all him. And if you were harmed by this, then he's the one you got to take to court. This is um, this is the case that Jack Smith is looking into. Jack Smith, the uh, special prosecutor. And two things that we've learned since Jack Smith took this job uh, is that he is fearless. He is absolutely fearless. He has gone after criminally sitting presidents of other countries. He doesn't always win. He's not 100% victorious. But he if he feels that there is a case to be made, he's going to make it and he's going to prosecute it. The other thing that's come to light since Jack Smith took this case over is just how weak the DOJ was on this case before Jack Smith took it over. All of a sudden we're hearing Jack Smith subpoenaing Ivanka Trump and and Mark Meadows, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, apparently the DOJ, when they had a hold of this case, the DOJ never even reached out to him. <sighs> apparently our fears that uh, Merrick Garland really didn't have the stomach for this were very valid. 
He apparently didn't have the stomach for it, but at the very least, the service he did for us was when he fobbed this case off on Jack Smith. He picked a prosecutor who is far more fearless than he is and far more willing to pursue a case than he is. Kind of a good news, bad news thing there. But Jack Smith, by all accounts, is, you know, in the in the land of the legal world, Things move so slowly that to the rest of us, they don't appear to be moving at all. When you take that as the normal standard, Jack Smith is working. He's working so fast, you practically can't see him. (laughs) Warp speed. So, um, Donald Trump, going to be in Iowa, trying to convince the... uh, caucus voters there that he should be the nominee no yet no word yet on um an official entry into the race from either Mike Pence or Ron DeSantis you know both of whom are clearly intending to be a part of the race Mike Pence making a speech recently um where he said that he would absolutely support the Republican nominee in 2024 as long as it was him. Oh, 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 Mike Pence, that card. I wonder um, what we'll hear from DeSantis and Pence in Iowa. Do you think they'll go? Of course they'll go. They should go. Donald Trump's going. I still continue to believe that Ron DeSantis is uh, sitting back hoping that Donald Trump will somehow implode. I'm not quite sure why he would think that that would be a possibility, because as we've seen from his previous presidential runs, there is nothing Donald Trump can seemingly do or say that uh, turns off his supporters. You know, remember that comment, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and nothing would happen? He was right. He might still be right about that. So that's where we are in Trump land. Four criminal probes, any one of which could result in some charges. What that means? I mean, if you're not convicted of a crime, there's no reason why you can't continue to run for president. There's even in some conservative circles, there is a belief that if Donald Trump is indicted in one of these four cases, it will actually help his presidential campaign. It will because, you know, he's the he's the candidate of grievance. They hate me. They're trying to take me down. By the way, they hate you, too. All those people. You didn't get what you deserved in life because all those other people, especially those black and brown people, especially those immigrants, they got they got the too big a piece of the pie and made your piece smaller. I mean, if if he is indicted, you know, he's going to. Talk about it as a positive. Look, I always told you they didn't like me. They hated me, which means they don't like you and they don't they don't support you and they want you to fail because look what they're doing to me. And really, I am the avatar for you. Anyway, um, I'm going to talk about uh, President Biden. He's been talking about the budget. He's been talking about the banks. We're going to get to some of that when we come right back after this. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Uh, Before I switch to national news, Governor Pritzker today signed a historic legislation putting the idea that everybody who works gets a certain amount of paid leave. Not always the case. We're like the third state in the nation to put this into law. It goes into effect January of next year, and it requires employers to provide a minimum of 40 hours, five days, of paid leave per year to be used for any reason. And if you don't, for some reason, use that full five days, say you only use two days of paid leave, the three days you don't use, You don't lose it. It carryovers to the next year. Maine and Nevada have this kind of uh, law on the books. Illinois is the third state to do this. You know, I mean, we learned many of us do have work for companies that provide us some kind of paid leave. But when we were um, digging into the rail strike and discovered that, that, you know, they weren't getting sick days, they weren't getting paid leave. Oh, my God. This is going to guarantee that if you work in Illinois, no matter what your company's policy was before January 1st, 2024, after January 1st, you as a full-time worker are entitled to five days of paid leave to be used for any reason. Kids sick, got to stay home from school. That's okay. Got to take your mom to a doctor's appointment. That's okay. Whatever reason. And and that makes so much more sense than calling it, uh, than giving somebody sick leave where they have to verify. Sometimes companies even require like a doctor's note. You know, God forbid, you know, your kid has a, had a, was sick and you took the day off. It's just ridiculous. I also want to talk about President Biden. There was a lot of news. A couple of banks out um, out west, Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank, have both been shut down by the federal government. There was concern that everybody who had their money in these banks, whether you were a business, whether you were a person, that everybody was going to be really out of luck. But um, President Biden put those fears to rest this morning. I want to share with you what he had to say. Listen to this. Oh, okay. Um, Sorry, I guess um, one of our squirrels is uh, malfunctioning. Uh, Paul will let me know when we have that sound from President Biden. President Biden also talked about the budget at the end of last week. And uh, I don't know if you heard this one clip where he talked about how he wants to raise the tax rate. He wants to raise the tax rate to, uh, for the wealthiest among us to uh, 28%. And when you hear the Republicans whine and moan and say that that's just outrageous and untenable, I want you to remember this. That was the tax rate on the wealthiest people under Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, who, if he were alive today, I think he would have a hard time deciding whether he wanted to be a Republican or a Democrat. 
because the Republicans of that era look a lot like Democrats today because the Republican Party as it exists now has become so far right and so radical. I don't know that um, I don't know that some of the people that they most worship, you know, St. Ronald Reagan. I think Ronald Reagan would look at the people who call themselves Republicans today, and I think he would be horrified. I think he would truly, truly be horrified. Um, we'll try to get to Paul. Why don't we just try to get to? Do we have it? Oh, okay. Uh, we got we got everything working back in the studio. Let's listen to President Biden. Thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. Last week, when we learned of the problems of the banks and the impact they could have on jobs of small businesses and banking systems overall, I instructed my team to act quickly to protect these interests. They've done that. They've done that. On Friday, the government regulator in charge, the FDIC, took control of Silicon Valley Bank's assets. And over the weekend, it took control of Signature Bank's assets. Treasury Secretary Yellen and a team of banking regulators have taken action, immediate action. And here are the highlights. First, all customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured. I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills, and stay open for business. No losses will be, and I'm on, this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Instead, the money will come from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. Because of the actions of that because of the actions that our regulators have already taken, every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. Second, the management of these banks will be fired. If the bank is taken over by FDIC, the people running the bank should not work there anymore. Third, investors in the banks will not be protected. They knowingly took a risk, and when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. And fourth, there are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. There you go. Dark Brandon taking over the banks. We're going to take a break. We're going to get back to local politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. On April 4th, people who live in the city of Chicago will be voting for a new mayor, but they will also, in some places, be voting for a new alder person. Several of the wards uh, are going to a runoff. One of those wards that uh, people are going to be voting on a new alder person for is the 46th ward. Longtime uh, city council member James Kappelman has decided that he is going to retire. Or he did retire. And so six people decided that they were going to try to become the next alder person of the 46th Ward. 
Two people, Angela Clay and Kim Walls, got the most votes, though neither of them got over 50 percent. Angela Clay and Kim Walls will be in a runoff election on April 4th. If you live in Chicago's 46th Ward on your ballot, you will see those two names and you will uh, be voting for alderperson as well as for mayor. We are trying over the next couple of weeks to get as many of the people in these runoff elections on the radio so you can find out a little bit more about who they are and what they want to accomplish. Today, Angela Clay joins us. She is a community organizer. As I said, she's going to be facing Kim Walls on April 4th. And she joins us now to tell us who she is and what she wants to do. Welcome, Angela. How are you? Hi, Joan. I'm awesome. Thank you for having me. Let's start with your background, Angela. Uh, talk to people about your personal and professional uh, background up to this point. Yeah, so I am a product of the 46th Ward. I'm born and raised here. I am a product of everything that this ward stands on, Joan. I, I went to our public schools, Joseph Brenneman, where I'm currently on the local school council. I graduated from the only high school in the ward, the Mighty Uplift Community High School, and then went to study public policy at DePaul. I have had the amazing opportunity of growing up in one of the most diverse communities on the face of the planet and a stone's throw away from the lake having access to public transportation to take me to and from jobs that I've worked, uh, whether it's been the Goodman Theater or the Shared Aquarium, you name it. I have been able to grow here, and I uh, recently became a mom at the height of COVID. I oh, boy. Have, <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. I have had to see firsthand um, how, how hard it is to pivot and also um, – be resourceful as well. So I currently am a part-time housing organizer with the Northside Action for Justice uh, group. I am a small business owner. I am a working class neighbor. So I am a jack of all trades and I actually ran for this seat four years ago, I walked away from my career at the Chicago Federal Reserve Bank to really uh, input my knowledge and my experience growing up in this community and the involvement that I've had here. Since I was 14 years old, I started to organize alongside neighbors from all corners of this ward around just how do we continue to preserve a safe, resourceful, um, and affordable community. So that's just a little bit about who I am. I've heard you, or rather read, that you have been endorsed by the Chicago Democratic Socialists of America. Um, what? Who is that group, and do their values align with yours? Yeah, so the Democratic Socialists of America is just a group of neighbors who are very intentional about how are we showing up for each other. The DSA, as we call them, are a group of neighbors who believe that we can help each other out and that we have the resources to input into meaningful solutions, whether that be uh, affordable housing or great public education. So I think uh, what I think that I've gotten from them is the the experience that we all bring is really aligned when you are looking out for each other, when you show up for neighbors like we have over the last three years, we have been doing mutual aid for our neighbors where we give free food away because right when COVID hit, a lot of our neighbors were unable to leave or get the bare necessities that they 
that they needed. And so we've been showing up for them as neighbors, not through the government or not through anything outside of ourselves. We partner with local organizations like um, Food Not Bombs, where we do food rescue, and we provide that. So I definitely think that just continuing to bring those those solutions to the table and showing people that we can really help each other in a time of need is crucial. So, yeah. Tell me, I always, you know, the word progressive, I think, Angela, is thrown around these days to the point where it's utterly meaningless. Um, How would you describe your politics? You have been painted as a sort of a, a, a far left progressive. Um, I don't even know what that means anymore. What, if any label, would you, if somebody said, well, Angela, what are your politics? Where would you put yourself on the political spectrum? How would you answer that? Yeah, I think my politics are rooted in people, Joan. I think I am not a fan of labels either. I am a fan. I'm very much a fan um, of effectiveness. I think that my policies are rooted into getting to the main causes of some of the things that we are responding to, whether it is mental health or public safety, and also looking at how are we doing that? How are we achieving those goals? I want to make sure that we are using every tool in our toolbox to to do that, to make a difference, not just here in the 46th Ward, but as, as the city continues to grow, we need to make sure that we are showing up for each other and our neighbors and doing it collectively. So my politics is rooted in people. It is rooted in fairness. It is rooted in making sure that the people who are both impacted by the policies that we implement actually have a seat at the table. Well, let's let's examine that a little bit, a little bit more closely. Your uh, critics have said that you're a supporter of the defund the police movement. Is that accurate? And if so, what do you mean by that? I am a proponent of reinvestment in our communities, and I think that is that is held and done in several ways. When we are reimagining how we how we respond to public safety, it has to look at long-term and short-term solutions. And a part of that is making meaningful relationships with our police officers that we have on the street. And it is also helping the police officers that we pay, Joan, with our tax dollars so that they can properly do their job to the fullest extent. Right now, unfortunately, a lot of our responses is just that. We are responding to issues on the back end, but we are not trying to get in front of it before it actually happens. And we know Well, that in what way? What specific thing would you do yeah, to so, support the police better than they're being supported now? Absolutely. I think that we need to look at getting them proper training because a lot of our police officers still are not completely trained in crisis intervention or how to be um, crisis um, respondents. They unfortunately have been called to a duty that a lot of them are unprepared for. 40% of the calls that they receive right now are solely going to respond to mental health calls. And we have an opportunity where we can actually send a mental health professional to the scene of a mental health crisis so that it isn't just putting our police officers in a position because I've had conversations with our police officers that patrol our community where they are saying that they don't feel like they are fit to respond to a mental health crisis because they're only 
options are to either take them to jail or put them in an emergency room, which is not a long-term solution. So definitely making sure that we are implementing money into our mental health clinics, that we are really opening our public mental health clinics that were torn down, that we are actively training our police officers, and that we are building meaningful relationships with them as well. So they get to know the communities that they serve. They get to build relationships with the young people, the business owners, et cetera, outside of it just being a call for help. I'm speaking with Angela Clay. She is going to be on your ballot if you live in Chicago's 46th Ward. In the uh, February 28th election, she came away with 34 percent of the vote. She was the top vote getter, but obviously 34 percent isn't enough to walk away with the seat. She's going to be facing Kim Walls on your ballot on April 4th. We're going to continue our discussion with Angela right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with Angela Clay. You're going to see her on your ballot to be the next older person from the 46th Ward. She's running against Kim Walls. Um, Angela, you were the top vote getter. You got 34 percent of the vote in this runoff where there were six people. Kim Walls pulled 25 percent of that vote. You have the support of the Chicago Teachers Union. Kim Walls has a lot of support from various legislators in up to and including uh, Congressman Mike Quigley and Governor Pritzker. Are you concerned that she has more political clout behind her? Um, not at all. I think I respect the people that support her. And I think that that is something that should be applauded on and that she has great relationships with um public officials at higher levels, but I think what the people really appreciate about our campaign is, again, the people have spoken in this race, and they want an alderman who is beholden to them. They don't want an alder person who is just going to use their personal relationships um, for their own private gain. And I appreciate all of the people who have thrown their support behind us, including today we uh, received the endorsement from the entire state council of SEIU, which is very near and dear to my heart as a mother who is um, trying to figure out the space of child care and also trying to make sure that I show up for our union siblings. I think that people really are interested and compelled um, when it comes to having someone who knows all sides, not just the political clout, but also the community that they are going to be serving for the next four years. What would you like our listeners to know about you, especially, you know, we've got some people from the 46th Ward who are listening to our interview. Uh, aside from whatever questions I want to ask you and I'm going to ask you, what is it important for the voters to know about you? Yeah, I think it's very important to understand that I have been doing this work, Joan. I have been doing this work without a title or without any clout because that is not the purpose of me doing this work. This is not community service for me. This is my livelihood. I started organizing with neighbors because we lived in housing conditions that were not suitable for anyone to live in. We faced challenges that no one would listen to our voices and actually organize with us on our behalf. And so this is just another step into the 
work that I've been doing for over 17 years. I started out as an organizer right here in this community at the age of 14. And I've just continued to grow and build and access so many different neighbors who come from different walks of life, different backgrounds, and have ask them to join me at the table. We don't always have to agree on everything. And that's the beauty of our ward is we have so many differences in opinions, religions, nationalities, income, you name it. That is the essence of our community. And that is something that I truly value. I think that we actually have an opportunity to have an older person that not only comes from our community, but embodies that every day. I am on our local school council at Joseph Brenneman because I am I am very much so aware that we have to put our children first and we have to do that holistically. I was the youngest president of a fifty one housing fifty one year old housing non for profit called Voice of the People, dealing with a hefty budget and people's real lives at an early age. And that's not something that I take for granted. This is something that I want people to understand that I do have the background and the knowledge to get the job done. And I also have been building cohorts with other city council officials. I have the endorsements of current aldermen, Matt Martin, Maria Haddon, Andre Vasquez, Carlos Rosa, Rosanna Rodriguez, just to name a few, because they understand that not only are we in this for our individual ward safety and longevity, but for the entire city as well. And so I think that really goes to show listeners and voters that not only am I wanting to work with you, but I want to work for you as well. The Uptown area, which is a part of this um, ward, has seen some incredible a gentrification over the last few years. So for your ward, particularly the idea of how to make sure people can stay in their homes, gentrification, which is generally brings some positives to a community, but also sometimes takes away affordable housing. How do you balance all that? And what's your what's your position on affordable housing and what could you do to guarantee that it doesn't go away? Yeah, so I literally Sorry, that was like four I, questions in one. Angela, I apologize <laughs> okay, for that. No, no, trust me, I understand because they live everything is connected to housing, Joan. And I have these conversations with people every single day about the importance of not just having housing but stable, affordable, quality housing. No matter what your income is, I am a product of affordable housing. I grew up in affordable housing. By the time I left my beautiful three-bedroom, two-bathroom home in this community, I was paying over 1300 bucks in rent because I was working at the Chicago Federal Reserve Bank. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it is free. It just means that as you progress in your life and in your career, that you are able to afford to live in prosperous communities. We have neighbors who are paying the same amount of rent, if not more, in other communities that don't have half of the things that we have. So my plan is to make sure that we are developing without displacement. That means that we are making sure that developers who want to come and develop in our community have on-site affordable housing included into their plans because everything relies on the stability 
of housing. When we have neighbors who are not able to afford their the communities that they have built into for generations, housing instability causes also it trickles down to our small business owners as well. So for us to come together and say, hey, we have an amazing uh, plan to develop. Now we need to make sure that a portion of those units are on-site affordable at, any, at, at all costs, right? For God's sakes, this community has had single-room occupancies to the former governor's mansion, right? So that should show people how intentional we always be with providing housing affordability. We also need to make sure, Joan, that we are building housing to support our families. Right now, the development that we have going up is just solely uh, surrounded around studios. And as a community of elementary schools, we have to be honest that this isn't a long time. This isn't a long term solution to the families that send their children to our communities right here. So we need to make sure that we are building intentionally. We need to make sure that we are building housing that will outlast us and outlive us. And that, again, we are offering a wide array of not just affordability, but housing options as well. You said an important thing at the beginning of this answer. You said that developers who are coming in need to make sure that they do affordable units on site because that's been that's been the big uh, deal with a lot of these like Lincoln Yards developments. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, okay, we've got an obligation to do 20 or 30 percent affordable housing. That's great. But see here at this luxury building that we're building, we're not yeah. going to do that. We'll build those units somewhere else. Elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they don't always, you know, building it shouldn't we should not be putting communities against each other when it comes to housing stock and affordability because people truly deserve to live all across this great city and safely. But right now what we are doing is we are handpicking where we would like our working class or poorer neighbors to live, which is horrible. If they have the opportunity to live in a vibrant, robust community where they could experience things that they would not have the opportunity to experience, for God's sakes, we have neighbors who love that we have new businesses coming into this community and they should be a part of that as well. So, yeah, it's about making sure that the developments that go up aren't just given the option to pay into the low-income housing trust fund and say, well, yeah, they can just build it elsewhere, but not in my backyard type of thing. That needs to be included in the plans from any development that wants to go up in our ward. And I think that that needs to be pushed all across the city as well. One of your uh, big financial supporters has been the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, Talk to me about some of the other groups that have supported and donated to your campaign. Yeah, so the Mighty Chicago Teachers Union is amazing, and I am completely appreciative of their help. We have also received uh, donations from the Illinois Nurses Association, right, because we have two Howard Brown health clinics right here in the 46th Ward, and they have understood that we have shown up for them when they just recently went on strike or when they were trying to make sure that their patients were not going to be negatively impacted by 
have this cut in staff. We've also received um, support from the Democratic Socialists of America, from uh, neighboring groups all around us. We have received uh, support and help also from neighbors like one. People's Campaign, the Asian Americans uh, Advancing Justice, um, a lot, all of our, all of our support, Joan, and and donations have come from people and organizations who have been on the front lines of taking care of our neighbors and who will continue to take care of our neighbors at every stretch of the way. How do you think the vote is going to go? You got 34 percent. Kim Walls got 25 percent. Marianne Lalonde came away with 17 percent. The four candidates who siphoned votes away from you and Kim, how do you think their supporters are going to fall? Yeah, so um, luckily one of the challenges that we had in this race was also um, an opponent of mine four years ago that made it into the runoff and has endorsed us Um Marianne Lalonde is an awesome neighbor um, who is dedicated to making sure that we have that is deeply rooted in this community and and putting our neighbors first. Uh, She has supported us and she will be making sure that her voters understand that we are here for them. You know, the other candidates in this race were awesome at highlighting what their visions were, but now it is about protecting our vision? How are we molding that into the greater good for our entire community? So I believe that the people have already spoken and that they will come out again on April 4th to speak again in our favor to make sure that we have a successful campaign. This campaign, I'm proud to say, is just a conglomerate of four years ago, Joan, I ran for this seat and I had no campaign experience, no money. Looking back, it's a chuckle to say that we raised $20,000 and we came within 300-ish votes of actually making the runoff. So the work has not stopped since then. It has just continued and obviously through the pandemic, it's just gotten harder. But we have shown up at every step of the way, whether it's for our houseless neighbors or whether it is for our elders or our young people. We have been here fighting for them and with them. And so I think that they have appreciated that. I think that they have definitely appreciated having a candidate that understands the interconnectedness of all of our lives here in the 46th Ward and how we really are dependent upon each other. And they're also just ready for someone who is not going to come in um, and, and just do what they want to do. They want to actually have a a representative that is going to listen and work with the community and not be beholden to any outside sources. Angela, it is a delight to talk to you. Angela Clay will be on your ballot in the city of Chicago in the for the 46th Ward Aldermanic seat that you will be voting on April 4th. Thank you, Angela, so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. I hope you have a great rest of your week. Me too. Thank you. (laughs) We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. I hope you were able to join us last week for our health and wellness panel. 
We used to do a panel every month, but you know, these, these pesky elections started getting in our way. Um, it was really, really an interesting discussion. And, uh, one of the people who joined us last Thursday for this was Zelma Chamberlain. She's a retired educator who teaches the spiritual meditation at Science of Spirituality. Uh, it was a fascinating discussion. I wanted to talk to Zelma in greater detail about the science of spirituality, what she does and why she does it. So I asked her if she would join us this week to uh, talk to us one-on-one. She very graciously said yes, and she joins us now. Zelma, welcome back to WCPT. Thank you so inviting me. I'm so uh, privileged. I feel so privileged to be back on air with you. Well, it is uh, it is our pleasure. You had uh, such interesting things to share with the audience. You know, it wasn't all that long ago that um, meditation was considered, you know, kind of kind of out there, kind of out there, Zelma. Um, Tell me, when did you start meditating and and what prompted you to put meditation as a part of your life? Well, I always knew within my own self that there was something else for me spiritually. And so having come through a very bad uh, romantic relationship, I uh, was working with someone that later became a, a friend for 40 years, and she and I began to talk and look at um, the start of spiritual journey, what is really what it was, and we started to read and um, research, investigate that there was something else more in life. And we came upon uh, the teachings of science of spirituality, and I became a part of that organization in 1983. And uh, tell and tell the listeners what that is, what that is. What you know, you were drawn to it, but what exactly is the science of spirituality? It's a meditation practice. And it's based on looking at yourself. It's a practice that doesn't ask you to, re- to leave your religion. It's a practice that's a kind of an ancillary spiritual practice. It asks you to go within yourself and sit there and enjoy the peace that is there. And it's, it's a very easy um, uh, method of meditation, it doesn't require any particular physical postures. It just says sit comfortably and go within yourself and begin to focus on who you really are. And that's what I started. Uh, actually, it's been, this is my 40th year, and it has this practice has totally changed my life in that it's made me much more calmer, uh, much more peaceful, much more accepting of Zelma. I think, you know, for many years I lived life as a people pleaser. I think a lot of women do that. We live our life as a people pleaser. But this meditation practice has taught me that that's not necessary. I can go within, I can sit quietly, 
I can really in tune to who I really am, what was meant for me, what, what, what I was created for, my true purpose. I thought it was interesting what you said a minute ago, that it's no matter what your religion, this kind of practice is compatible. Because sometimes I think people think, well, it's all Eastern, and if you're like Buddhist or Hindu, maybe. Um, right. But but talk about that. Um, you know, this practice is not a practice that says you have to leave whatever your re- religious tradition was or is, you don't have to leave it. This is just a, a different, I, I like to call it an ancillary practice. It's just something that we do in addition to. And it's just a practice whereby you sit and you focus on that true essence of who you are. And if you, as you begin to do it, you really get into it, and it brings a lot of peace and um tranquility to the life. For example, I have learned that Zelma doesn't need to respond to everything that's going on. I want to operate from a place of proactiveness. So I don't respond now a lot to a lot of the stuff in the world that's going on. I want to be proactive. What can I do to make it more peaceful? What can I do to bring love into the world. That's the shift that has happened within me. You were an educator uh, before this. I was. Tell me how that impacted your journey and where you are now. Okay. Um, I worked with students who most of you, your audience, would have run from. These were gang members. They were young people who were pregnant and parenting at a very early age. And I just thought that they were sent to my classroom because they needed special love. And so we created many organizations, little clubs within the school environment that would help them deal with a lot of the stress that these young people were trying to manage. And to move to after they learned how to manage it, to then begin to navigate the world successfully. So um, it was really a rare opportunity in my life for me to have an impact. And that impact for me started with meditation because um, at the time I was in the state of Virginia and we have something called the moment of silence where everyone in the classroom is encouraged to be quiet for one minute. And so I would ask the students, please be quiet, and let's just focus on who you are in this particular moment. And it, it really became, uh, uh, if I ever missed the moment of silence, the kids would always let me know, <laughs> we haven't done our moment of silence. Everybody has to be quiet. And so we would sit and be quiet for one minute, and then we would go on with our lesson plan. But it, it was it was really fascinating to watch young people that society has kind of kicked off to the side, said, "Oh, they're just not worth it." Come around and begin to 
um, be productive citizens in our society instead of uh, the opposite. So it, it was a very uh, rewarding career. Wow. And one of the things that has been um, written about a lot lately are not only the calming, centering, uh, mental effects of meditation, but the fact that there are actually physiological changes in our bodies when we meditate on a, on a regular basis. Have you found that in your case? Oh, absolutely. Um, when I go to the doctors now and they take my blood pressure, that's a big one, especially for a lady in her, I'll say, late 60s. When <laughs> they take my blood pressure, um, it's usually always in the low 120s. And I find that the medical people always say, what are you doing? Your your blood pressure is always very calm and peaceful. I heard someone once say, I want my goal in life is to be the calmest person in the room. Hmm. Think about that for a minute. No matter what room I walk into, I want to be the absolute calmest person in that room. And so um, once you begin to practice meditation, you really understand that that's really, you become very equipoised in your movings and in your um, uh, navigating the world. So I, bet your, I bet your doctor's glad that you're doing it. <laughs> yes, she's quite happy. There are so many other uh, benefits, such as um, a decrease in the frequency and severity of asthmatic attacks. That's a big one. And other allergic reactions. We sometimes speed, uh, we say that meditation can speed up your healing time and your recuperation. I had my knees replaced, bilateral knee replacement. And my orthopedic said to me several times, he said, you know, you're the poster girl for knee replacements. I've never seen anyone heal quite as quickly hmm. and robustly as you did. Wow. That that's attributed to meditation. Meditation is a great stress reliever. It really reduces stress, which also leads to, you know, things like heart disease, insomnia, high blood pressure. You know, the blood pressure is a big thing. I think chronic pain, too, that meditation can help chronic pain. So these are all what we call the side benefits of meditation. But there are also um, mental benefits. As I said, it calms the uh, person's um, mind. It makes you more relaxed. You have something that many of us are looking for, and it's called emotional stability. You're not so rocked by the happenings in the world. We, we, uh, it enhances our relationships. Uh, it, it certainly works to decrease depression and anxiety, which I think we are in. You know, we just came through the physical pandemic of COVID, but now I believe we're in a mental pandemic where people are just overloaded with all of the 
activities of the world. And meditation is a way to handle that, to deal with that, to help you navigate the world at a very loving and even pace. I'm speaking with Zelma Chamberlain. She's a retired educator who uh, teaches spiritual meditation at Science of Spirituality. We're going to continue our discussion right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Last week, we did a health and wellness panel, and one of the most interesting panelists was Zelma Chamberlain. She teaches meditation at the Science of Spirituality. And uh, Zelma, in the break, I was just looking over uh, our text line. And we have a few listeners who still aren't convinced that it still seems a little out there to them. I'm sure that's a reaction you get all the time. What do you tell uh, skeptics like that? I ask them to try it. And, you know, As the saying goes, Rome wasn't built in a day. As I often use the analogy, when you teach a baby to eat, you don't sit a five-course meal in front of him or her. You You give them just a little bit. So I would suggest to those who are skeptical, try the practice for as little as five minutes a day. And then watch what I call, watch your world. Watch what happens in your life. People will begin to say to you, there's something different about you. Did you color your hair? Have you <laughs> lost or gained weight? It's just they feel and they pick up that you're meditating, but they just don't know that that's the practice that you're doing. So I would encourage everyone to certainly try the practice. And if, even if you try it for as little as five minutes, and it's a very simple technique. And if you don't mind, Joan, I'd like to share it with your audience. That would be great, Selma. You sit for in a comfortable position where you can sit over an extended period of time. Try not to sit next to someone so that if they move, it doesn't bother you. So you're going to sit there You're going to close your eyes very gently, just as if you're going to sleep. You're going to focus your attention eight to ten inches in front of you, into that dark space in front of you. You're going to repeat a calming word. Now, this word that you're repeating, you're not going to repeat it out loud. It's a silent mental repetition. So my word might be peace. Peace, peace, peace. So you start repeating your calming word. Once you've got your calming word, just gaze very lovingly without any anticipation of what's going to happen on that, in that dark area. Just start repeating your calming word and focus your attention there. You may begin to see flashes of light or circles of light. Everything that you'll see will be very calming and peaceful. It takes you to a place where you can relax and really get into who you truly are. You want to gaze lovingly, we say, with the attitude of gratitude as you gaze in front of you. It's very similar, Joan, 
to going to a movie theater. We don't anticipate what the actors are going to do on the screen. We simply sit there and gaze at the theater, at the, 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 the movie screen. And I would encourage your listeners to try it. And as I'm saying, I'm not going to ask you to try it for 40, 50, two or three hours. We're starting off with five minutes. And if you like it, you'll add another minute on each week or two minutes on each week. But certainly try it. Try it at a time in your day when your home environment is quiet. And then just start off with five minutes and see how it changes your life. Um, I want you to, before we, before we wrap this up, I want you to talk about the eighth annual uh, Divine Beauty Women's Retreat. You're a part of that, right? Yes, yes. We're so excited to welcome the public to the Science of Spirituality Center in Lyle, Illinois. We're going to enjoy the eighth annual Divine Beauty Women's Retreat on March 25th. We are, have a wonderful keynote speaker, Dr. Allison Thompson. She is the Presidential Lifetime Service Awardee, and she is going to be speaking on the Third Wave Volunteers, which is a wonderful group that she has started. And here again, all of our topics will be related to women's empowerment, transformation, and self-care. I will be speaking, and my talk is what's love got to do with it? Taking uh, <laughs> a spin from the Tina Turner um, song, we will have lunch. There's a free vegetarian lunch for those of you. And then we'll have a panel of women in the afternoon who will discuss their particular path to empowerment and how we can combine and talk about some similarities and hopefully inspire our audience to uh, begin their own empowerment journey. And we believe that it starts by looking at the self, so um, self-care. And so that's what we'd like to invite you to. It's Everything is free. It's on March 25th. Again, it's our eighth annual Divine Beauty uh, women's retreat. If anyone in your audience would like to attend, we would encourage them to go to uh, www.sos.org, Divine Beauty, and you'll see the uh, registration tab there where you can let us know that you're coming. Say that address again. I didn't. I didn't catch all of it to write down. Okay, it's W www.sos.org and search under Divine Beauty and you will find us. You will find the registration page. Were you, uh, as part of your portion of this uh, retreat, are you going to be uh, teaching meditation? Absolutely. You will be able to experience a probably 10 to 15 minute meditation session. So we will teach the technique during the day and you will have an opportunity, our audience will have an opportunity to actually sit in meditation. 
Well, uh, as I said during the health and wellness panel, my doctor, you know, you every time you go for a checkup, the doctor's always, are you exercising? But my doctor, before he even says anything about are you exercising, first question is always, are you meditating? And at first I was like, you know, you know, you're, you're my doctor. And he would, he pounded it away and pounded it away. And I started, you know, I'm not uh, somebody who spends a, a lot of time. For me, it's, you know, a minimum of five, certainly no more than 30 minutes, but it really does, especially um, I'm one of those people that has a hard time sleeping at night, and it really it really sort of makes your you, your mind and body just kind of slow down a little bit. Um, I understand okay. what you what you mean when you say that it, it gives you a, a little bit of an inner calm. Um, and if you you know the first few times you do it, you know it's there's no right or wrong. You know if you if your mind just keeps filling with other thoughts, that's okay. You just you just yeah. keep you just keep doing it. And at first I thought, oh, this is terrible. I'm never going to I'm never going to do this. I can't do this. This is too hard for me. And my mind just never shuts off. But the more I did it, there would be little breakthroughs where, huh? Oh, right. that must be what they're talking about. And if I, it's just something yeah. I think you have to really give you have to give it a shot. Yes, you know, we are a society that wants everything instantaneously, but this is a situation where we just start very slowly. We want to be gentle with ourselves, just like when we learn any new skill, when we learn how to drive. We, we're not Mario Andretti on the on the track <laughs> right at first. Or ever. Or ever, but as we progress, we become better at it, and it's the same with meditation. Well, I can't imagine a better teacher than you, and you certainly do bring that sort of inner peace even to uh, our radio discussions. So thank you for sharing with my audience a little bit more detail about what it is you do and why you do it. Thank you, Zelma. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Joan, and I look forward to meeting everyone on the 25th. That is when the 8th Annual Divine Beauty Women's Retreat is taking place. Uh, Zelma Chamberlain, who teaches meditation at Science of Spirituality, will be there. Uh, She's a terrific person, a great person to meet. We are going to take a break. We're going to shift back into political gear right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Before we move on to our discussion of more local politics, uh, I didn't get a chance last week. Um, oh, okay, Paul, uh, hang on. Um, you know what? <laughs> we we have Jonathan Jackson on the line, so you know you're just going to have to wait to hear what I have to say about Joe Biden's budget uh, because this is more important. Uh, Congressman, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Joan. Always appreciate you. So how do you like, first of all, let's talk about you. How do you like this new job of yours, being a, a congressperson? I love it. It's an um, enormous um, privilege to stand in and have the vote to speak on behalf of the people of our region and to hear the issues and to uh, be a part on the inside to make a difference, see the resources, I'm empowered with the job to bring resources back to Illinois and to our region in the 1st District and beyond. So I'm very excited and very grateful. Well, it's a relief to hear you say that. Um, 
heaven forbid you should come on the radio with me and say, you know what? I had no idea what I was getting into. It's a terrible job. I, I, I hate every second of it. Uh, so in Congress, what are you with this upcoming uh, legislative session? What are you most eager to work on if indeed the Democrats are going to be allowed to work on anything? You know, that is a that is a challenge, but I'm sure we're going to work our way around it. I'm on two committees that I'm very happy with, Foreign Affairs and Agriculture, um, and both of them, to me, are interrelated. It's the same coin, just different sides. The issues in Ukraine have to deal with also, they're one of the weak baskets for the world, and also for phosphate and Belarus that puts in uh, the topsoil for a lot of countries that don't have sustainable farmland anymore in the United States with We've been enormously blessed to have agriculture capacity with the rising climate change and other things. You're going to see more countries that are going to be challenged for their sustainability, meaning they're going to you're going to have some, some countries to topple because their land is no longer uh, supportive of having a culture and a civilization on it. It's become uh, inclement and inhospitable for humans. The other side is agriculture means so much to our country and our city and state uh, specifically. It's a fully funded farm bill year. So I'm very much concerned about what's happening to rural farmers, farm life, farm land, all the way up to the urban consumers. It's one continuous supply chain, one pipe, totally interconnected. I hate to see that family farmers are uh, getting taken off of their land and aren't in a very competitive position. So I'm learning fast, and I want to make sure that they have a competitive edge, and it's a way of life that we predict and preserve, and hopefully to see grow. It's shrinking too fast. I think it was the Wall Street, no, not the Wall Street, Washington Post, um, some months ago with this new, newly reconstituted Congress and all the divisiveness. There was an article that said the, the perhaps the brightest spot in this new Congress and the one committee that might actually be able to move forward in a bipartisan way was the committee on agriculture. They really were shining a spotlight on you and, and just this thing that whether you to fight to save family farms isn't a Republican or a Democrat issue. It's a people issue. Do you really think that you and the Republicans on this committee will be able to see eye to eye on important legislation? I really do. Um, unlike some of the other committees that are going into witch hunts and other things, Department of Agri- the Agriculture Committee um, really has some solid people on both sides. And these are people in rural areas that are being hard hit with food insecurity. We have to keep that in mind. This isn't uh, an urban issue. Uh, the rural community needs these farm subsidies, not just on the land, but also on the food and nutritional programs. And the good news is the country is wealthy enough and strong enough that we can support it. Now we have to prioritize it. So I do see many good people. And they're coming in from California and Kansas and Ohio and Michigan and Texas, all the way through the deep south and upstate New York. It's very bipartisan, and I'm very pleased with its leadership. As part of the Foreign Affairs Committee, do you foresee a time when you might be making a trip to Ukraine? 
Um, not at the present time. I think that um, I don't think there's a real focus on that by the congressional delegations, uh, simply because it's a war-torn area. They need all of their resources, I would believe, to stay on the front line, take care of the women and children, nurse their veterans and their soldiers that are sick. I feel very uncomfortable, not for safety reasons, but for area of priorities of people trying to move us around to sightsee. I would personally not be interested in that for that reason. I've gone to war-torn areas. I've gone into Mozambique and into Angola. I've gone into Haiti after earthquakes. I've gone into Iraq before there was a war with Saddam Hussein, with my father, Reverend Jackson, to meet the president. So I know what war scenes look like, but I wouldn't want to uh, pull any of our resources away from their front line, veterans, soldiers, women and children, um, to be hosted to go around the country. Would the Foreign Affairs Committee be involved at all in our efforts to help Turkey and Syria recover from those devastating earthquakes that now have left a death toll of over 40,000? Absolutely. When we look at the migratory patterns, um, let me digress just one moment. And this is something that I find absolutely impressive. And I have to take my um, hat off and stand up and Thank God for the um, Polish community that uh, when the Ukrainians were invaded and pushed out, where did the three million people go immediately? Quite a few went into Poland and Poland was not set up for this large amount of uh, massive migration. And those three million people went into people's houses. They went into their schools. They went into their hospitals. So it's one of the greatest stories that's not been told of that humanitarian open arm rescue. So when I see issues that we're talking about in the United States, Chicago or New York or on the border with 100 people, 1,000 people or 1,500 people and saying that we're overrun, my God. I mean, look at what Poland did with 3 million people that came there with just a shirt on their back. So to your point on what's happening in the Ukraine and now on to Turkey and Syria, right, the people have fled into all regions. There's been a long-standing war going on in um, Syria right now. And Syria, before it became a hot body, was taking in refugees from Iraq. They were taking in people from Palestine. They were taking people in from Lebanon. And now they've had to move again. And we're on the Turkish border. And they face some discrimination and hostilities. And they're getting run out. So it's a complex issue, but we have to face it. Because there's no borders around the world. People have to continue to migrate to where they seek safety and opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there are certainly some Republican colleagues in Congress who um, very publicly have said some things like, you know, uh, we should stop supporting Ukraine or we're sending too much uh, money to Ukraine there has been some pressure that he so far seems to have successfully resisted for Kevin McCarthy to actually make a trip there. You said a few moments ago that you have visited war-torn areas. How does your thinking change when you see the death and destruction up close and personal? Oh, uh, I can feel it. I can smell it. I was at Haiti in 2009 after the earthquake. Earthquake, of course, is not war, but to see bodies that have been laid out for so long with decomposing, they've had to burn them in the street. 
stench of smell you don't get out of your mind. I was in Lebanon after they were bombed. Um, I think it was around 2013. And you can go there a week or two afterwards and smell that stench of people that are still trapped in buildings. They can't get out. I've seen this um, before. And to be on the Foreign Affairs Committee, one of our first hearings was uh, talking about what happened in Afghanistan for the soldiers that were left behind. And I actually teared up and cried after the testimony of one or two individuals. Uh, specifically, one was, I think, Sergeant Vargas. But to see a 25-year-old soldier, now a veteran, with a double amputee from his arm to his leg, and uh, see the excruciating pain in his face from the comrades and friends that that had died, and uh, to see this young man carrying this amount of pain and torment behind, uh, it only reinvigorates you. And for that, I thank my father for having uh, been on the front side of being a peacemaker. And uh, I want to take that same energy and spirit. We have to do all things to avoid war, and we have to uh, step up and pay the full cost of bringing our soldiers home and paying for their long-term service as veterans. But these are 25-year-old young people. And it was several young men, it was two in specific, that uh, cried and teared up during their testimony and had to um, catch hold of themselves, just reliving every day and night. I've seen this when I was a teacher at Chicago State and could see some of my students that were young people. The veterans kind of stand out in the class when they're more mature, more are focused, and then to learn that one tried to commit suicide during test time uh, broke my heart. So I want to be on the front end of stopping and trying to avoid these wars. Uh, This is a pain that their families suffer with that um, I want to be, I want to make a difference. I'm speaking with uh, First Congressional District Congressman Jonathan Jackson. We are going to take a break and be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Congressman Jonathan Jackson. Uh, He has uh, been enjoying his time in Congress so far. He's on a couple of pretty important committees, foreign affairs and agriculture. You know, um, I've read a lot about how the Republicans, now that they're in power, they're creating all of these, um, well, like the weaponization of the government investigation committee and, and stuff like that. And I've also been reading that uh, Democrats are kind of being sidelined. Is that an overstatement? Do you feel that Democrats are going to be able to work with this current constitution of Republicans in Congress and get anything done? Because some have predicted that uh, it's going to be really difficult to pass legislation in this Congress. Well, it's not just the Democrats, the Republicans leadership and the makeup of their caucus they're having trouble within their own ranks making leader, making decisions. They're having trouble uh, presenting to you and the American people a budget, something to counter what President Biden has put forth. So we're eagerly awaiting their plan, not just cut and slash and burn and, and what we can't do, but what's the vision, what leads um, that party forward. So I wouldn't put it necessarily um, – 
on the Democrats at this time. I really don't like going into the partisanship of it, but unfortunately, we have to sometimes. But what is the plan that they've proposed? Just what is it? And so to say that we're going to have across-the-board cuts and would show that 85% of the spending that uh, Americans have benefited from goes away. Well, that doesn't work. So it sounds cute to say we're conservative and we believe in deficit reduction and all that good stuff. I believe in the same thing. Now it gets difficult when you ask how do you do it and what stays, what goes away. And as we rein these uh, spending, uh, the spending in, like, how do we do it in a manner that's humane? Like, I don't want to take food off the table for women and children, people that are dependent. Like, people need their assistance, and we still have to grow the economy. We still have to invest. Like, so we're waiting on more, on more answers from them. Well, one person that I was talking to said what what they think President Biden should do is uh, look at the Republicans, say, "Okay, you don't like my budget. Let's see yours. And not just not just platitudes, but exactly what you want, exactly where the money is going to come from, completely transparent. And then we'll talk. Um, That would be a good thing, I think. Joan, you know this very well. You're 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 very knowledgeable and and sage at this. Absolutely. So where's the plan that we can all discuss where we've now got the technology, phone, TV, iPads, extraterrestrial, more time on radio, like open it up so we can talk. I mean, think of FDR and the fireside chat where he said where the, where the nation was going, we talked about the new deal. What's their new deal? Like, how do we get to the future? We haven't seen it yet. So we're eagerly awaiting that input. Well, we know your focus is on uh, the big issues and what's going on in Congress. But my guess is that you're also kind of keeping an eye on Chicago politics as well. Um, Have you been involved in any of the campaigns? Yes, I have. I came out and endorsed uh, Commissioner Brandon Johnson uh, around January 16th. So I've uh, supported him and have campaigned with Commissioner Johnson. And what was your reasoning behind that endorsement? What do you like about Brandon Johnson? Well, then he's been a teacher. <clears throat> he's been in the classroom. Very important. You've got to see the poverty <clears throat> up front. Also, I've been with him and we fought against the 50 schools that were being closed. I also believe that we have to now make a critical investment in our children and our city for its future. So, I've appreciated his leadership on his advocacy for the children uh, of our city. Are you going to be campaigning for him? Are you going to be like going door to door or making some phone calls or even better, raising some money? (laughs) Think about that, right? So yesterday we were at four churches together. Yes, I've been boots on the ground. I will uh, assist him on the fundraising efforts. And, you know, there's a congressional fundraising hurdle. Now, you have to raise for my campaign. i got to raise some for the party. So I've got some national obligations. But I certainly will be supporting in that regard. And um, I must say, I don't attack anyone in these campaigns. I am trying to put out a positive message. Uh, Brandon's been a teacher. He's been in the classroom. He's seen it up front. Uh, I think he has the know-how, the knowledge, the compassion to lead us forward. 
I've worked with Paul a lot over the past. I don't have any personal animosity towards Mr. Vallis. So between the two, I've simply made a decision to support Mr. Johnson. I um, co-moderated a mayoral forum Thursday with Cheryl Corley from NPR. And uh, at one point, the you know, because, you know, I've been reading ever since February 28th, you know, ooh, it's, you know, it's going to be ugly, it's going to be dirty, it's going to be vicious. And I don't think that has happened, at least not yet. Maybe as we get closer to April 4th, it will. But this debate that Cheryl and I were co-moderating, at one point they're looking at each laughing with each other, they're shaking hands. Um how do you have campaigned? How do you keep the clear competition from devolving into especially personal attacks? You've lived through it. Well, what are the guidelines? Well, you have to know that the election will be over sooner than later and that uh, you're going to still live in the city. And we're fortunate to have great leadership. And um, you want to hold your head up and um, also be able to build bridges. And the way you campaign is the way you have to govern. So if you come in with a scorch the earth, tearing someone down, then it's harder to rebuild in the aftermath. And I do think that people are attracted to positivity and the future on what's in it for them. How do you make things better for them? I think that has to be the constant focus. It's not on the candidate. It's on the plan. How do you make people's lives better that I'll go away, other candidates will go away, other elected officials will go away, but did you stand for the people? Did you stand for the greater good? So that's how I keep focused on it. And also know that at the end of the day, I was with uh, Brandon Johnson at the um, Irish Day Parade, and we walked them together, me and him, and Chairwoman uh, President Preckwinkle. And when I saw Mr. Vallis, I went over there, greeted him, shook his hand, talked to Paul for a while, and uh, we took a picture together. So I consider Paul to be a very decent and um, nice man, and so I'm not going to attack him in any way. What are your plans going forward? Um, Well, uh, I'm glad you asked. The focus is we have got to address this crime issue in the city of Chicago. There's some short-term solutions and there's some long-term plans. But um, all the way from today, my heart is broken to hear about the CEO of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, his wife being carjacked. I'm glad that... Yeah, Terry Duffy. um, Terry Duffy's wife was uh, carjacked in downtown Chicago. He was not a happy camper about that, nor should he be. He shouldn't. And for the other people who've gotten carjacked and have had terrible consequences, my heart goes out to them as well. We've got to put an end to this. Where is this coming from? And one of the parts that's personal for me is when we close these 50 elementary schools, the largest elementary school closing in American history and started privatizing, chartering and trying to voucher these elementary schools, we've seen these students had a lack of investment. So when you look at the amount of buildings that are now uh, beautiful campuses from the past, now they've become fossilized and the young children aren't on a track to play tennis this summer, play basketball, have track. I'd like to see some funds, more funds go to coaches. Uh, We've got the potential to get uh, tennis players and golf players and 
other sports out of this city. Look at the amount of schools that have lost their football programs. So, yes, we need to immediately address crime. We have to have more police on the streets. We've got to have more detectives to solve this crime, and we've got to put more money uh, into these young people that are going around creating these, uh, committing these heinous crimes. And I don't want to make this a war on children. We've been there before. Children are the same. But what has happened, the circumstances in which they live have changed. These schools are under-resourced. So I want to see these schools opened up later in the day so we can put more services back in there and address their needs and their behavioral change. I've traveled the world, and people are the same all over the world. They need the same level of opportunity and safety and security. Something has happened here where these children feel very unsafe and they're very insecure, and this is a consequence um, of that lack of investment. Yeah. Um, My uh, daughter-in-law is a student teaching at a high school in Bronzeville. And, you know, I was talking to her about the students and and what she can do to, like, help ensure them to be successful. And she said one of the problems is uh, the students who come into the high school, she thinks more resources need to be applied, what you just said, at the elementary school level. Because she said we have so many students who come into high school and they're, you know, they're barely reading at a fourth grade level. And here they're supposed to be handling, you know, high school topics and high school reading. And she said, you know, before you can even, you know, before you can help them succeed, it's like you have to make up for for the fact that they are so far behind. Uh, it really it it really is a situation that needs time, attention. I don't know if, if money is the solution or, you know, we have a tendency whenever we have a problem in society, well, you know, we'll allocate more funds. But it seems to me, and I think both of our candidates for mayor realize this, there has to be more than just money. There has to be a real commitment to helping these kids. And if, and if, and if they can feel successful at school, they'll be more likely to stay in school if it becomes a positive place for them. Exactly. And you know, Joan, between the school teacher and the police, it's the same coin, different sides. We have to make sure that the children see a pathway to become officers so that they want to be involved in law enforcement. They can protect their own community. Community policing works. You know, you protect your own neighborhoods. Everybody understands that. The teachers, they come to teach, not to police inside the school building. The policemen cannot be uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, marriage counselors, and all these other things. There's too much put on the police. Mm-hmm. You can call them for everything. That's, a, that's an emergency. And they have a right to feel safe and want to get home to their family and children. It's absolutely 1,000%. And for that bad half a percent that's in there, even as we see today, more people are coming out of jail from the legacy of Commander John Byrd. There has to be leadership within the within the ranks to go after and kick out those bad officers. I mean, they pollute the entire workforce. I mean, we've got all we've had men still lingering in jail because of the legacy of Commander John Byrd, which destroyed so much of the fabric. That's why I was such an outspoken critic and asking for justice on behalf of those persons that are in jail. That started destroying the very fabric of the nation while other people got promoted, elected, and rose up on the backs of a man that was committing torture on a community. Now we have to repair it. We have to fix it. There's two thoughts in schools. One is we prepare our children for school. 
But when you see this level of poverty and the challenges that are that are going on now, we have to prepare our school for the children. These children will need more assistance in the building to deal with their behavior for food and insecurity and socialization after COVID. So I'm excited. Um, Chicago is indeed at a, at a crossroad, and I'm very optimistic. I have confidence. Uh, actually, in uh, Brandon, you know, I can support Paul. I can work with either. So I'm not going to make this into a showdown. And other people are thinking, oh, this is the end of the world. No, it's not. The end of the world. <laughs> I don't buy into that. So I'm not going down that path. But I do have a preference. I'm going to stand by that. And to the victor, I will support wholeheartedly. Well, thank you for being with us. And uh, if there's anything that's going on in Congress that you would like our listeners to know about, please, please, please just give us a shout because um, I will share my microphone with you anytime. You're the best. I'm going to start doing this much more frequently. Joan, I always enjoy talking with you and thank you for your listeners. And thank you for being the advocate you are. You're a true uh, great American citizen. Matter of fact, I need to do something to you for Women's History Month. Um, you got something coming in the mail, young lady. Oh, I do. Well, aren't you aren't you sweet? I, I I'm very excited now. I will be watching my mail very closely. Um, thank you. Well, you deserve it, and I'm and, and I'm saying that because you do more. You do the research, and um, you actually put the time in, and you don't play the gotcha, which I absolutely appreciate it. And you're hard hitting. You're fair, and thank you. We have no prior conversation. These are live, unfiltered, and we'll keep it that way. And I appreciate you, Joan. You're very kind. You're very kind to say those things. It's certainly not necessary, but um, I really appreciate uh, I really appreciate that. Thank you so very much uh, for saying those wonderful things. I'm feeling all warm and fuzzy now. So, <laughs> so thank you for the interview. Um, before I embarrass myself further, we better take a break for news, and we'll come back with more politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. A while back, I um, I took a day off, and Eric Zorn filled in for me. And he had a conversation with Doug Frazier about the problem of people who lack housing or lack adequate um, opportunity to find and pay for housing. And I got so much feedback on that discussion and how people really thought that uh, they came away much more informed about the whole situation that I I reached out to Eric and I said, give me that guy's information. We need to talk to him more. Um, so uh, Eric very uh, sweetly gave me that information. And uh, Doug Frazier very kindly agreed to come back on the radio, and he joins us uh, here right now. Doug, thank you so much. Sure, thank you. And thank you for that introduction. Well, you know, um, I got such great feedback when I got back about the discussion that the two of you had had. First, tell the audience, for those who uh, weren't able to listen while uh, uh, you were talking to Eric, tell them your background and why you have a bit of knowledge about this issue. Sure. Well, I'm the executive director of an organization called the Chicago Help Initiative, and we do really two things. We do meals, resources, and peer groups for homeless downtown. 
So meals are obvious. Guys are hungry. Resources, you would know a lot of them in terms of social service and different things that people need uh, when they're in trouble, when they're homeless. Everything from an ID to an email to uh, uh, access to housing lists, access to computers. We do those kind of things. And then we do peer groups. We do uh, a drama group, a short story group, a uh, yoga group. Uh, we used to do art. Uh, we hope to start that up again. So we do a whole uh, short stories. We do a whole set of things designed to connect isolated people together. So often when you're homeless... I was going to say, you need to explain that a little bit a little bit more. I'm not sure I feel like I grasp what a peer group is. Sure. So we put a, uh, an opportunity to participate in a group with other people about, let's say, reading and discussing short stories. And so people who have an interest in that will gravitate towards that group and participate in the short story group. And the intent is to connect isolated people together. So if you've burned through a lot of the relationships you've had, you may be in and out of various situations, and you need people to solve your problems. You need friends. You need connections. You need human interaction. You can't do without it. Without it, things just get worse. So we try and create that around uh, common interests, and those groups are run uh, all by volunteers. Everything from computers to the theater group are run by volunteers. I've um, always heard uh, people say, you know, the... If if anybody, if we took anybody out of their regular lives and put them on the street and had them live on the street for a few weeks, that they would present as, you know, a little bit crazy, you know, sort of like, you know, everybody's like, oh, well, you know, they're on the street because they're crazy. Or is that or is it that they're a little bit crazy because that's how they're living um, and that, you know, sort of a there but for the grace of God go you. Well, it's, it's both things, right? So uh, it's often folks who uh, have some challenges that end up in this situation. It, sometimes it's, you know, there but for the grace of God. You'll meet many people who were homeless and have transitioned out of homelessness, either through a trauma that created it, a crisis, a set of bad decisions. And you'll also meet people that fall into that second category in terms of mental illness and other challenges. But the, uh, the first thing you said is really correct, right? So if you're homeless, you got trouble sleeping at night. You're under constant stress. Your day is a constant. You got to go from place to place to get the resources you need, whether that's food, whether that's anything else. It's it's a really, really hard, stressful way to live. Just put yourself under stress for a couple of days and, and you won't be the same person. Well, do it for a couple of months and it really does affect you. So what is it? Uh, I think these peer groups, I've never heard of anything like this before. And it makes perfect, it makes perfect sense when you, when you take a look at the big picture and, and how you can reestablish those human connections. What else yeah. is helpful? Uh, so helpful is, for example, uh, being able to get a, a good night's sleep. That may be access to a shelter or access to some other setting that gets you to get a good night's sleep. Another huge issue, uh, there's two of them, and this might seem surprising, but is nutrition and exercise. The population we serve is disproportionately affected by uh, diseases and issues related to nutrition, such as high blood pressure, uh, obesity, uh, diabetes. And the, the guys know it, they feel it. And so when I've done surveys and say, you know, what do you, what do you need? And the answer, of course, the first answer is housing, mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously. And, but the second answer is obvious, obviously things like 
vegetables is a healthier diet and exercise. It turns out that it's easier to you know get access to different types of food than it is to get access to places where they can exercise in in the way that you and I would in a, in a gym or something like that. But it it the first time I did that survey, it really stood out to me. I was like, I didn't even see that coming. Hmm. Well, I just read something recently where they were talking about the problem of the unhoused and the person said, you know, you know how you really address this problem? You create housing, you build housing, you provide housing. And they pointed out the state of Mississippi because, you know, everybody says, oh, well, it's a problem of mental health. It's a problem of addiction. And uh, they gave the example of Mississippi has some of the worst health care of all 50 states. They are ranked at the bottom of addiction treatment. They're ranked at the bottom for mental health treatment. But they're also 50th out of 50 states in a problem with having unhoused people because there is so much cheap housing in Mississippi. And it's like, duh. You know, so you can say mental health. Yes, we need those services. We need medical services. But how about... We provide more SRO rooms or more shelter beds, not even really shelter beds, but little houses. I don't care if they're little houses. I don't care if we buy a a motel that's gone out of business and turn those into apartments. If you want there to be fewer people who are unhoused, you need to have more housing. It's kind of obvious. It's Yes. So you're you're dead on in this. And and if we look at Chicago today, right, we've seen a 14 percent. And, 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 and you look around, you see so many more people out on the street. There are two reasons for that. One is there are more homeless and there and there are fewer shelter beds, which is another conversation. But there are more homeless. Why? Because you've seen on average a 14 percent rent increase in the city of Chicago and the highest rent increases. This is from Urban Labs at University of Chicago. If you want to check out the dashboard they did is on the south side, on the west side. So that means the people less able to adapt are the people getting hit proportionately the hardest. And, of course, if you're on the bottom rung of the housing ladder, you're going to get pushed off there. Without a house, you can't get a job. Without a house, you can't stay clean. Without a house, you can't organize your clothes. Without a house, you can't keep your possessions. Without a house, you can't get a good night's sleep over and over and over again. And so, of course, that exacerbates problems. And the key, the long-term key, is housing and the cost of housing. And I want to add two other things while I'm on a roll. Uh, The second is that there are some people that will never adapt to moving back into housing, and that's true. But that nut really isn't that big. Those are the people you think about that have long-term standing mental health issues or other sets of issues that make it very hard for them to live alone. But even today, the city of Chicago's projected rate of what they call permanent supportive housing is only about 9,000 units. We have a million housing units in theory in this city. That's a really small proportion of what, and incidentally, Joan, this study is from 2012, so it might need amending. But what the city says is is the, the nut that it's got to accomplish to serve that population. So it's not that big. It makes a disproportionate impact for sure when you see the settlements and you see uh, people begging out in the street. But it's not that big and it's doable. But finally, the other thing to think about, to think about is that 80% of people who appear on the HMIS, that's the Homeless Management Information System that we use to track this, never get help by the formal system, okay? So you call up 311, you say, I'm homeless, I need a place to sleep. They'll run you through the coordinated entry system, enter you in the HMIS, and 80% of the people who enter that system drop off. 
They just disappear. They don't die. They don't get institutionalized. They just disappear. What happens to them? Well, if you come to my meal and you ask my guys, they will tell you, my auntie happened. My grandma happened. My cousin happened. They reconnected with family or with friends and moved back into a housing situation. So, so that's a key thing. The, the final component of this, of preventing people from getting homeless, is helping those families at the bottom rung of the ladder keep their, their loved ones in the home with them, keep, help them out with the stress, help them out with the issues they face, because that's much more cost-effective and much more humane, dignified, and decent than it is getting them out on the street where whatever problems they might have are going to get exacerbated and then try and fix it. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to Doug Frazier. He's the executive director with the Chicago Help Initiative. We're going to continue this discussion. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Doug if uh, we give him the power to uh, fix this problem. What what does that going to look like? What's he going to do to make that happen? We'll be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Doug Frazier. You first heard him. Eric Zorn interviewed him when he was sitting in for me. And um, the feedback was so incredible. I asked him to join us again. He works with the unhoused. And uh, Doug, we are going to give you the magic power. We're going to give you all the money and all the resources you need. How are you going to fix this problem? If you did that, first of all, I would just move to Bermuda. But, <laughs> but also, uh, assuming assuming we put it in the right place. So the first thing you've got to do is create more settings for people to get inside. So we lose anywhere from 60 to 80 people that die of exposure every year in the city of Chicago. So you can't help them if you don't get them inside first. And here are the, the immediate things you've got to do. One is... You've got to look at the COVID restrictions that were put in place. And I know this is not a popular thing to say and say, what is the cost benefit analysis to keeping them there? And this is a this is a difficult issue to get at. I get that. But here's the thing. We have removed those restrictions in almost every other setting we see in this society. And if the guys are so that, that they originally had, you know, uh, one to two feet between the beds. And now they, in some cases they have as much as six feet. And that alone cost us 400 or more beds within the shelter system. And it's one of the reasons that people are outside. So you got to review that for a cost-benefit analysis and say, does it make sense to shorten those distances again? And also understanding that the guys who are not sleeping in the shelters may be sleeping on the CTA, they may be sleeping outside, or they may be sleeping in emergency rooms and other locations like that where there are no such restrictions. So we lost a bunch of beds. At pre, immediately pre-COVID, we had 3,300 shelter beds. In the cities post-COVID, we have 2,900. So we could look at adding 400 beds if it makes sense back into the system. Second, there's something called permanent supportive housing in the city of Chicago. They have about 8,000 units overall at the moment. Uh, last year in March, so a year ago is the last time this data was published, 21% of those units were vacant, roughly 1,600 units. There's been no data published since then about what's up with those units. Uh, other well, how, how can that even, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, how I, can that I'm be? Keep going. Exactly. Excellent question. So that needs to get posed to the continuum of care, all Chicago. In March 2022, HUD said this was unacceptable. You had 
21% of your permanent support, supportive housing units were vacant, and it was roughly 90 days that it took us to put people into those units. Where are we now? Are those units still vacant? Are there still excessive number of units? And what I'm doing here is going for low-hanging fruit, because if that problem isn't fixed, uh, as it wasn't a year ago, then we have units to move people into right now. So that question needs to get posed right there. What's going on with this, and why don't we know? Well, who's in charge, Doug? Who do we reach out to? It is all Chicago and the Continuum of Care runs this system. See, that's their website, and ask them, what's going on with those units? Put the information out there. But if I had the authority to do this, I'd say, how many have you still got? Uh, In the long term, obviously, the building of of PSH, Permanent supportive housing is the key part of a solution. But in the meantime, you've got to figure out how many people you have calling into the 311 system who need shelter and how many are being turned away. And that's very difficult because the information from 311 was FOIAed by the University of Illinois, and they came up with some staggering statistics. And one of them is only 10 to 15 percent of the people that call into that system get picked up and moved into supportive housing. So your odds are roughly one in in ten. Is that is that my math right? That when you call for help, you'll get the help that you need. That system is broken, and we need to fix it. It's overwhelmed. There are too many people calling, too many pickup sites, and it needs to be re- reformed. Here's a real easy idea for reforming it, Joan. You know that homeless congregate at certain sites, right? You know they're in ERs, you know they're at community meals, you know they're in libraries, you know that they're on Cumberland and O'Hare of the CTA. Schedule pickups there, and you will capture a lot of these guys. In fact, 50% of all calls made to 311 come from ERs. So if you have an overwhelmed system, go to the point where much of the calls are coming from and pick up there. Just, just see the, and in that way, we'll move people from those locations into beds. The final thing, though, is you got to open up more spaces. We've lost over two thousand spaces beds since 2015. Uh, part of it was COVID, which we already talked about, and part of it was a belief, which is very well intentioned, of replacing those beds with housing units. That's the long term. That's absolutely the way to go. But in the short term, when you don't have enough shelter beds in congregate settings, you've got to go back to that. You've got to get people inside so they don't freeze, so they don't lose their fingers, so they don't lose their ears, uh, so that they can get inside, get a night's sleep, and move forward with their lives. I think it was a reporter for Block Club Chicago that was out at O'Hare when uh, police did their most recent sweep of uh, the homeless who were living at O'Hare or at least spending their nights at O'Hare. And they recounted a conversation that one of the cops had with a woman. And she was like, you know, like, where am I going to go? And the cop answered, you know, it's we don't know where you're going to go. It's not our problem. We you just can't be here. So we're taking you away from here. Yeah. Yeah. And that was that was sad because you have people who I mean, so first off, people don't should not be sleeping at O'Hare, and we're a better city than that, and we ought to be able to address that. But when you get into a situation where the policies we've had as a city have created the situation where they have nowhere to go, uh, then we then you, that that's the wrong way to approach it. Uh, you can't just put them out on the CTA because you've just shifted the problem to other locations and you've made their lives that much harder. 
Yeah. One of my uh, girlfriends recently, for some reason, had to take a, a re- really early CTA bus. And she said it was just, you know, part of the bus was people sleeping. And the people who got on the bus to go somewhere left them alone. Um, nobody bothered them. And she said, not that it's ideal, but it, at least they were left alone. Yeah. So, and it's, I think it's, it's safer and it's warmer than some other locations, but sort of going back to your original question about what makes you crazy. uh, And there's, I'm sure you've got some CTA fanatics who can make sure I get these numbers right. But I think the longest ride on you can take on the CTA is O'Hare is the red line back and forth or the blue line back and forth. Perhaps it is. And that's, I think about a 40 minute ride. So you got to go from one end to the other. Then everybody's got to get up, get off the train, cross to the other train, and then ride back the other way. And that's no way to sleep. It's like having multiple babies in your house at the same time. You just keep getting woken up. So I'm, I want to go back to a point you made about how um, the shelter beds were moved apart when COVID restrictions were put in place and that in a lot of places they haven't been moved back together. But I was under the impression, Doug, that the governor had lifted any COVID mandates, any COVID restrictions that were still uh, in existence. So why are shelters still following those mandates if they don't have to? I think they do. Uh, and from what I have understood from the shelter prop providers is they are still following them and they're required to follow them. Uh, and that's what our conversations have been. And if I'm if I'm have a misconception there, then I would like to be corrected. But I have understood that to be the case. Uh, and it doesn't make sense. It makes sense to restore them to the way they were. There is a, another argument out there that more space is better for people. That is. uh, non-congregate shelters, individual settings are better than congregate shelters. And that's flat out true. But the question isn't uh, uh, what you do on a regular basis. It really is what you do in weather emergencies, because when it gets too cold for people to get outside, you've got to make those compromises of getting people inside. So if you go back to 2015, when we had about 5,000 shelter beds, those beds were only full about six to eight nights out of the year. So when you had extreme weather events, when the danger kicks in, people did get inside. And in fact, we had overflow even with those numbers. Uh, but that's that's not all the time. Now we have it all the time. So it's not a problem that's getting better. Uh, is that pretty much the takeaway here, Doug? Yeah, but it could, is the point, is that there there are some some quick things we can do to improve things. For example, looking at those restrictions and their impact and looking at whether or not some of those PSH uh, units are still open. There are some long-term things positive going on that there have been two grants issued to the city to build more PSH and to build uh, and to convert existing uh, congregate units to non-congregate units. Am I making sense or am I throwing out too much jargon here? Well, define real quick what a congregate unit is. So a a congregate unit is everybody in the same room, and that's a classic shelter where everybody's sleeping on cots or on mats. Like a dormitory style. Uh, Everybody, yeah, but everybody. Very big, very big dormitory. Yes, exactly. And then non-congregate would be individual spaces. And we know that people just do better in the non-congregate, in the individual space setting. So there, and, and the current grants that were issued about $30 million say 
you convert to non-congregate, but don't lose units. And that's a positive approach. But we still have to get back for the short term, June, uh, Joan, I'm sorry, to getting people inside when it's dangerous for them to be outside. And that has to remain a priority. I would also add one other thing, not to sort of create a controversy here, but I've got a a PDF from the city of Chicago here that says the city is currently housing 2,259 migrants. Bless them for doing that. That's what we should do. But if you can stand up 2,200 shelter beds for uh, an emerging and arriving population, then, then we should be standing up beds for the people who already live here. We should be doing both. Yeah. It's not an either-or situation. Doug, uh, I understand now why the audience went wild when you uh, were on the radio before. You're a wonderful, wonderfully well-informed and passionate speaker. And uh, please join me again in the near future. Anytime. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Doug. We're going to take a break and be back with more politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As I mentioned earlier today, there are going to be uh, a number of candidates on your ballot if you happen to live in a Chicago ward where there is a runoff. A number of the seats that uh, were vacated either because of retirements or people moving to other elected office or at least trying to move to other elected office. Those seats were vacated uh, in many races. There were anywhere from five to ten different people competing for those seats in a race where there's so many people. It is almost impossible for one candidate to get 50 percent plus one. And so there are going to be a number of runoffs across the city of Chicago. One of those is going to be in the 46th Ward, where uh, Kim Walls is going to be facing Angela Clay in the runoff there. Kim joins us now to talk about her candidacy. Kim, welcome to the program. Hello. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. One of the things that I noticed about your candidacy is that... um, there are a lot of people in uh, important positions in government who have endorsed you. Mike Quigley, uh, Governor Pritzker, plus uh, a number of um, people at the, at the state level. How do you think you got those endorsements? How do these people know you? Sure. So I started in Chicago politics in 2000. I, I moved to Chicago. I, I didn't know a soul. I walked into a, a precinct captain breakfast at a bar, and I said to someone, who should I meet here? And someone said, that's Mike Quigley, your county commissioner. And I walked up to him, said, I just got a master's in public policy from Georgetown, and I'm looking for a job. And he, and he hired me two weeks later. So I started out my career kind of being somebody that absolutely nobody sent. <laughs> uh, because that I work, which, uh, you know, it's, it's not often the case in Chicago politics. Um, but, you know, I spent 10 years working for Mike Quigley, eight years on the county side and two years on the federal side. And I developed a lot of relationships and people saw the work that I could do. They saw my commitment to the community and they knew that I was someone who could get stuff done, which is what we really need. So when I went to elected officials that I've met throughout my career and, and asked them to support me in this race, um, they were ready to endorse because they know that uh, we need to keep moving the Chicago, moving the city forward. What does an endorsement bring to a campaign? 
So you know, it depends on the endorsement. Uh, some of the elected officials who endorse me um, have contributed to my campaign. Um, some have been helping with me, uh, helping me, like, you know, talk to voters or knock on doors or get engaged. Um, other ones, uh, you know, just having someone who can speak to the fact that they think that I have the skills and qualities we need to lead um, is also really important. Just having them as a validator when I talk about my experience, when I talk about what I can bring to the city, having someone else agree with that, that is respected by the community is really important. What is it that motivated you to go from being somebody who was a dedicated behind the scenes worker to want to be the person whose name is on the ballot? Well, it's, it's a hard leap. And it's and even now it's, it's a little strange when I look at a sign or I'm talking to a voter to realize that, you know, oh, that's me. And I'm actually talking about me because, like you said, I'm so used to being the person behind the candidate. But, you know, I was raised by a teacher and a nurse, and my folks taught me that if something's broken, you fix it. And I want to be a part of fixing things. I think the city of Chicago is moving in the wrong direction. People don't feel safe. We have an affordability crisis in the city and in the ward, and we have a social safety net that's completely broken, and I want to fix things. Um, I have a brother who suffers from mental illness and is chronically unhoused. And I, I lost both of my parents in, in the last five years. And one thing I always said to my parents, and I committed to them, that I was going to try and change the system for people like my brother and for other families who are really struggling to find care for their loved ones. I was going to ask you, a lot of people I know who run for office do so because there's something that has happened in their lives that makes them, you know, obviously people who want to run for office want to do a lot of good, but there's generally something particular that they, an area that they bring a particular passion to. Talk a little bit more about your family situation, your brother, and, and the ways that you think it might be better if you are in a position of power. So it, it's heartbreaking to have a family member going through something like this. Uh, my brother was actually a journalist. Um, he was on his way to his first uh, journalism job out of college when he had a schizophrenic break, and it forever changed all of our lives. And it began a cycle of trying to find treatment in a society where we don't have enough treatment, where we always have enough beds to put someone in jail, but we never have enough beds to get someone long-term care. And I came from a family where my mom was a nurse and we had, you know, medical expertise in the family. We still couldn't get the proper care for him. And it's still something we suffer with and struggle with today. Um, just three weeks ago, I got a call from a police department that had picked him up and they mm. said that he needed more long-term care. And they said they didn't have the options in the jail. And they called the state of Illinois to try and get him long-term uh, more substantive treatment. And the state of Illinois said, we don't have a bed for seven months. Oh. And, and the jail's response was, well, we can't take care of him either. So they called my family and said, you need to come pick him up or we're going to open the door and just let him out in the street. So oh. we, were, we were able to find um, a bed, but because it was a voluntary situation, he checked himself out the next day because we don't have the kind of care that he needs. And it's heartbreaking that we have um, a country with so much abundance and a state that has so much to offer that they are still saying that there's a seven-month wait for someone to get the treatment that he needs. Oh, my and God. It's, it's, it's so broken. And we always have a bed in a jail. 
that, that's always available as an option. And we don't have enough resources to actually care and, and help people. And I hear from so many family, other families that talk about this. I'm very open talking about it. And I have friends call me and say, I have a cousin, I have a, a sibling, I have a friend, and they just don't know where to go. And we've completely failed families and individuals going through these types of crises. I'm speaking with Kim Walls. She is going to be on your ballot if you live in Chicago's 46th Ward. Uh, she's running against Angela Clay. Uh, you will be voting on April 4th. We are going to continue our discussion with her right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Alderman James Kappelman decided to leave the Chicago City Council. Six people jumped into the race to replace him. The top two vote-getters were Angela Clay, who on February 28th had roughly 34% of the vote, and Kim Walls, who came away that night with 25% of the vote. These two will be in a runoff. It is going to be the same ballot where you pick the next mayor of Chicago on April 4th. We are talking to Kim Walls right now. Uh, we just talked about part of why she wants to get out from behind the scenes and get into a position where she can get things done in addition to um, mental health services and services for the unhoused, Kim. What are some of the other areas that you really want to tackle as a city council person? Well, public safety is a top priority, and this is something I hear over and over again when I'm talking to neighbors across the ward. And this is also something that I personally feel. We're at a point in Chicago where people are starting to have a conversation, you know, with themselves or those around them. Should I carry my purse when I walk outside? Should I leave my cell phone at home? Because people just don't feel as safe. And I am very focused to uh, dealing with the public safety issue in the Chicago. Uh, we need to fill vacant positions in the police department. We have over 1,500 vacant positions. And that means that 911 calls can't be responded to in a promptly manner. Or that, in, you know, police officers can't get out of their cars as much and develop, uh, you know, relationships with the community and work on issues with trust. And it means that businesses might not want to invest in the city of Chicago. People don't want to move here, visit here. And it's, it's a crisis in the city that we've got to tackle immediately from a short-term perspective and a long-term perspective. Well, one of the big questions is always, where's the money going to come from? What do you think? Sure. So when I worked for Mike Quigley in the county, we wrote seven reports on how to restructure and reinvent government. Because I firmly believe that are, there are absolute government efficiencies that we can find where we can save money in the existing budget. We also aren't spending money that we're allocating for different programs. Last year, we allocated $85 million for violence prevention programs, but we only spent $5 million. We're just not even spending the money we're budgeting. Who's in charge of, of doing that or, as the case may be, not doing that? Well, that's what I want to find out, because there's a complete lack of accountability for our tax dollars being used in the city. I recently learned that when city council members vote on the city budget, they don't get um, the prior year's estimated expenditures. So they're asking the council to vote on a budget and not telling them how much they think they spent the year prior in estimated expenditures, which is unacceptable. So how can 
city council or any elected official, for that matter, keep going back to the taxpayers and saying, oh, we need more money for this. We need money for that. If they're not actually told how much is being spent. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is kind of out of left field, but uh, a few of the older people that I talked to many months ago were uh, raising the issue of things might be a little bit more organized in the Chicago City Council if there was an actual city charter, if there were actual, here's what we do, here's how we do it, we're laying it all out right here, we've all voted for it, we've accepted it. And just this morning, uh, I read another article that said, uh, I think it was in Crane's Chicago Business, and they were looking at San Diego and how they function. And the legislator in San Diego said, well, one of the things you guys are missing is you don't have a city charter. You know, it's sort of like, here's what we do and how we do it and who does what. Um, is that something that you would support, a city charter? I, I like the idea of it. My concern would be how much time we'd have to spend arguing over what the city charter would say and how much time that would take from other more immediate priorities in the city. But I support the the concept of it for sure. But the city spends so much time arguing right now about things that aren't pressing issues. Uh, And I really think we have to focus on the affordability crisis and public safety and the property tax crisis in this city and really get to the root causes of those issues and how we're going to solve them. And then it would be great if we could address issues like the charter as well. On February 28th, a lot of people across the city of Chicago voted for policed district councils. I believe each police district, uh, they were voting for three people to sit on the council. But progressives have argued that, you know, while these district councils have been created, they really don't have any real power. You know, they can tell the police what the community thinks. They can tell the community what the police think. They can potentially make recommendations, but they have no, there's no teeth to any of it. Do you think that they need to be given teeth? Well, I'm optimistic that they can serve as a bridge between the community and the police department. But I think time will tell whether or not they're able to actually have the teeth that they need because there are you know, there are provisions where their decisions can be overridden and we need to see how far they really can get. What I find frustrating about all of the different models we've tried to bring more community to the police is, is we, we end up kind of giving up on them and not funding them and not staffing them. The city of Chicago used to have a model program through the CAPS program that was emulated in cities across the country. And then we just stopped properly funding it and properly staffing it. And then it's now just a portion of what it used to be. And I just want to make sure that this, the new councils have the chance to succeed. And any way that I can do that as elected official to help them succeed, I will do. Neither you nor Angela, you know, got enough votes to put you over the top there. So there's a big bunch of votes out there that went to some of the other four candidates. And of course, there's always the voters who don't even bother to vote. What are you going to do to expand your base to include enough people in the 46th ward to get you elected? Well, I'm going to focus on the issues that really matter to the ward. And as I mentioned before, the issue I hear over and over again is public safety. And I'm the only one in the race really talking about the short-term solutions of filling all of the vacant positions in the police department. We cannot be having conversations at this point in Chicago about disinvesting the police. We have to be filling these vacant positions, getting officers back on the street, and also making sure we have enough detectives and making sure we have enough evidence technicians. I've learned that this Chicago Police Department 
shares two DNA evidence technicians with the Illinois State Police. And it's not that we share two of ours. There are two, the entire state of Illinois, which means, Joan, that if you have a DNA evidence at a crime scene from either a sex crime or another crime, that it could take up to two years to process that evidence, which means that individual is back on the street and committing more crimes. We have got to dedicate resources to the police department and making sure that not only do we have cops out on the street, so there can be building trust and be patrolling our neighborhoods, but also enough people to actually solve and investigate crimes as well. What is your game plan for the time left to get out and uh, get your message out to your voters? I am talking to as many people as I can, knocking on doors, phone calls, having meet and greets in buildings, uh, communicating in every way that I can. Some people like it if you knock on their door. Other people like it if you have a coffee meet and greet and they can meet you in person. Other people want to look at a piece of mail. So I'm just trying to reach uh, every voter, you know, where they're at. And I'm doing it all with a six-month-old baby. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite, quite the experience to launch a campaign while pregnant and give birth three days before petitions start. But uh, I'm doing it. Wow. Um, hey, hats hats off to you. Well, uh, speaking of uh, somebody who lives in the city of Chicago with a child, uh, talk about uh, education a bit again. There's been a big move by Governor Pritzker to start education in the earliest years that um, people will not succeed if they don't get that early start. Would you, you know, we have uh, two education candidates running to be the next mayor of Chicago. So hopefully whoever wins will make education a huge priority. If you get a chance to sit down with the new mayor, as far as the education realm, what are you going to ask them to prioritize? So I'm excited that the governor is prioritizing early child education. Uh, 50% of the intellectual development of a child happens before the age of three. So we have to make sure that every child in Chicago has access to quality child care, quality pre-K, and those tools they need so that to set them up to succeed in our schools. And that is a priority for me. And especially now being a new mom, we make it so difficult in the city of Chicago in this country to be parents with the cost of education and child care and formula and diapers. And we need to do a lot better job at helping uh, families succeed. And, you know, I've been told that, you know, from people who run food pantries, that there is more demand now than there has been in many, many years. And a lot of food pantries are starting to carry things like diapers and and formula. Um, how would you expand access to those very necessary things? You know, we've got to look at where else can we find uh, public dollars to help support those programs. It's incredibly important. And we also have to look at formula and the access to formula, as we saw during the shortage earlier this year. Um, a, there's a lot of um, limited options when it comes to the women, infant, children, the WIC program for access to formula. And usually it's just access to one brand. And if there's a formula shortage due to a factory shutdown, it creates a lot of disruption in the industry and really um, impedes access to a lot of individuals for formula. So I want to work to make sure that we have broader access to formula and that there's more funding to help uh, sustain that as well. 
We know that a lot of money pours into congressional races and Senate races and even races for mayor of the city of Chicago. Is it difficult to fundraise for an aldermanic race? It is because you have to spend so much time trying to raise money just to get your message out. When you, I would much rather be spending that time calling voters, knocking on doors, and going to visit people. But in an area like the 46th Ward, a lot of it is not knockable because we have so many high-rises. And your means of communication in an accessible way are very limited to those buildings. Like, you know, I stand outside buildings at bus stops and talk to voters on their way to and from work. Um, try and have meet and greets in the buildings, but ultimately you need to raise the money to have mail and advertising going into those buildings so you can introduce yourself to all of those voters. But I wish we had public financing of campaigns in the city, and I would be a a supporter of it if we did. (laughs) Yeah, I can see where that would be. That would be extremely useful. Well, give give our listeners a site where they can go to learn more about you. KimWalls.com, W-A-L-Z. And the easy way to remember it is like the dance minus the T, Kim Waltz. <laughs> okay, Waltz minus the T. We'll, re- we'll remember that. Kim, I wish you, I wish you the best of luck. I know that um, having a six month old is draining and I know that campaigning is draining. So God love you for even being awake enough to talk to us on the radio right now. Um, I think it shows that you've got a lot of stamina. Yes, and a lot of caffeine. <laughs> yes. That's uh, Kim Walls. She's going to be on your ballot. If you live in the 46th Ward, you will have a chance to vote for her on April 4th when you choose the new mayor for the city of Chicago. That's going to do it for me. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. Uh, Santita Jackson kicks our day off every morning at 6 a.m. I will join you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Stay safe, my friends. Have a great evening. Good night.